Well, as Chris announced and has been really hammered the last few weeks, tomorrow begins our five days of prayer and fasting as a church. We have a few pictures there. Jonah, if you don't mind just kind of going through uh, some pictures. Uh, three times a day, we'll be getting get, uh, together uh, to worship and pray and go through the word. We're going to be going through the book of Jeremiah this year, or what I call the Jeremiah books, because Friday at noon, we'll do the five-chapter book of Lamentations, Okay. And, uh, but so basically what it looks like is tomorrow morning, 6am, we come on down here, kids are welcome to come and we worship, we go through those five chapters per session is what it turns out to be. Everyone reads unless you request not to read. And it's just a wonderful time for everyone to be involved. And then we just let those scriptures that we read, those things, those words inform us on just kind of how to pray, uh, during that session. So uh, we'll have a schedule posted on, it is posted on our website right now. If you go to calvaryprindle.com, we'll post it on our Facebook page, get a flock note out to you. And, uh, and it's just uh, typically in the chapel in the morning, uh, in the fireside room at lunch, and then in the sanctuary in the evening. And so uh, just a wonderful time. Um, Charles Spurgeon said, truly our days of fasting at the tabernacle have been high days indeed. And it really, truly is like you would never think, right? Like fasting just sounds like agony and brutality and uh, boring and just blah, 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 you know, and, and uh, if anybody would think that it'd be me and I'm just telling you like, hear me out, hear me out today. Listen to last week's sermon. If you didn't listen to last week's sermon, go on our YouTube page, please. Will you listen to last week's sermon? Just see what the Lord does during these times in the old Testament. It's incredible. And I really feel that there are words in that sermon for you guys. And then uh, we're going to look at fasting in the New Testament uh, today. So, uh, and then wonderful time of the week is this Friday at 5 p.m. Uh, we'll have our break the fast dinner together. And it is just, it is the cherry on top. I mean, not to talk food analogies right now, but it's the star on top of the tree. You know, it is such a great time. Even if you weren't able to be here much, even if you didn't fast, Come be a part of that, okay? It is the big festival of our year as a church, and it is a powerful time. So we invite you to be a part of that. So um, you can have your uh, Bibles open and just uh, the first chapter we'll look at today is in Luke 2. We have all the verses on the screen. But yeah, we're looking at fasting. Um, I was reminded of a time I was doing research on fasting, and as I was typing fasting into the, the search bar, um, I typed fast and then instead of I N G, I accidentally typed O M G. And, uh, that's typically what we think of when we're, it's like first time you hear about fasting, you're like fast O M G. What are the, am I in a cult here today? And, uh, that's, um, or there was the time that we had the mistype of instead of fasting, we typed fatting and it's really my type of fasting, honestly, with you, um, but a lot of people think that, you know, it's what Hindus do or Buddhists do or Hare Krishnas do or something like that. But we see that uh, Orthodox Christianity has a, a high view of fasting. Um, when my son Russell was growing up, most of his life, we'd been a fasting family and we were explaining fasting to him. And when he was younger, his response was, fasting is kind of like when Jesus grounds you, you know, and it's like, well... Hopefully we move beyond that understanding of it as well. Matthew Henry, the 15th century Puritan preacher said, fasting is a laudable practice and we have reason to lament that it's generally neglected 
among Christians. Maybe that would be the case for you. Fasting Is fasting neglected among you as a Christian? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I wonder w- whether we've ever fasted. I wonder whether it's, uh, it has even occurred to us that we ought to be considering the question of fasting. The fact is that this whole subject seems to have dropped right out of our lives and right out of our whole Christian thinking. And I give God the glory that that's not the case at Calvary Prineville over the last 13 years. This will be our 13th fast as a church, uh, 14th year that Oregon Calvary chapels have been fasting. We're joining in with about close to 50 Calvary chapels who are fasting this week throughout Oregon. A lot of our good friends and people we muster with and things, uh, they're going to be fasting uh, this week. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, uh, and if you know Charles Spurgeon, he was kind of a heavier guy, heavier preacher. He really struggled with gout, and that would be an agony, an agony in his life later on in life. But he said that there is a lightness that comes over the frame, especially of bulky people like myself. We begin to feel ourselves quite light and ethereal. But there's a lightness, an elevation of the spirit above the flesh that will come over you after some hours of waiting upon God in fasting and prayer. So if you want to get a little light in the loafers, uh, spend some time fasting and praying with us this week. So we're going to kind of go through a bunch of New Testament scriptures regarding fasting. Uh, we see, first of all, from Luke 2.36, that fasting was a way that Anna served the Lord night and day. So it is a way to serve the Lord this week. You're wondering, how, how can I serve the Lord? How can I be a part of serving the Lord? Be a part of the fast. Now, there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with a husband for seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayer uh, night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So, uh, you know, we've got about 15 hours this week that we're going to be spending down here at the church. And if that seems like a lot to you, imagine Anna, since, uh, you know, seven years after being married and her husband passed away, she spent, you know, 80 something years down at the church all day long, just ministering to the Lord with fasting. Second place we see fasting in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter four in preparation for ministry in Jesus's life. Also in his powerful defeating of the wicked one and conquering temptation, overcoming temptation. In Matthew chapter 4, we see that the first thing that the Holy Spirit does after anointing Jesus is leads him into the wilderness. Or I think Mark's gospel says that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. That doesn't sound very dove-like, does it? The, The, you know, the drover of a dove, right? Driving Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Uh, Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he tempted him with food, right? If you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the first thing that the dove does is push Jesus into the lion's face away from food for 40 days. Um, this is what the, the beloved one who pleases the father goes through. He's pushed in the wilderness and he proves his loyalty to the father. Matthew Henry again said, 
He was dieted for the combat. I kind of like that last night when I read that. Fasting. He was dieted for the combat as wrestlers who are temperate in all things. And so for 40 days, he triumphed in fasting. You know what? We would not be saved here today and have the hope of redemption if Jesus would have failed in this period of temptation. John Piper said, we owe our salvation to the faith-filled fasting of the Son of God. And in his faith-filled fasting, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. Jesus quotes from the Old Testament when he uh, addresses Satan here. All three of Jesus' rebuttals are from Deuteronomy. He draws all of his swords from the scabbard of Deuteronomy, someone once said. In Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3, it says, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you. So the wilderness wanderings were a fasting of sort, right? Then they humbled and they tested to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So the Lord humbled you, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. What happens during our times of fasting and prayer? We are fed with manna that we do not know. Nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that Man shall not live by bread alone. Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So that's what Jesus quoted from. And it's in our times of fasting that he makes us know it. That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. It's not that we say, I'm a longer for God and I'm hungry for God. We show the Lord, I'm hungry for you. We show the Lord, amen, I can live on the bread of your word. And one thing about our just extensions of reading, that it's like whole books of the Bible. One year we did the whole New Testament in seven days. Uh, We've done Genesis through Ruth before. Just big, all the minor prophets. This year, Jeremiah. Last year, Isaiah. And, and it is really like you feel your spiritual belly get filled up as you go through the word together. It's a really special time. But Jesus identified with the people of God who hungered in the wilderness as he arose as a victorious Joshua who went into the promised land. He, is, he was the Yeshua. He's the true and better Yeshua, Jesus, Joshua, tested not to see if he'd obey, but to show that he would obey and he would pass the test and he would die for our sins he would defeat the devil rise from the dead and enter into the eternal promised land full of milk and honey how did jesus fast it was more than 40 days did you know that it was 33 years that he fasted it was said he embraced 40 days of pain before three years of pain in a life of 33 years of fasting from the rights and privileges of deity. Fasting is a test to see what controls you, what your bottom line passions are. Richard Foster wrote one of the first great works after a hundred years of nothing on fasting. It was in the fifties that Foster wrote um, a book on fasting where he said, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the thing that controls us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who wants to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We cover up what is inside of us with food and other things. We medicate with all kinds of things, don't we? We numb and put anesthesia over our pain. Everybody does that. There's no exceptions to that. But fasting uncovers all of us, all of our pride, all of our idols, all of our pain, all of our anger, all of our lust, it shows us what's within us and that we need to either deal with it 
or smother it with food and ignore it? What will you do when you don't have supper to look forward to? Day after day, you discover that if you get resources from God, you can deal with life or you have to go back to the flesh. We find spiritual communion with God sweet enough, hope in him deep enough, not just to cope, but to flourish and to rejoice in him. Paul said in 1 Corinthians six twelve, I will not be ruled by anything. And it's in these times of prayer and fasting that we, you know, we can say that. Are you a smoker that you've been trying to quit? These are times that you say, sorry, you don't get to rule. You know, are, are you someone that enjoys a beer and you found that that beer, it's coming, you know, every meal, there's two beers and it's just, it was just a nice, you know, way to relax after work or something, or it tasted good with pizza, but you know what? It's been every single week and maybe a dry January week would be good for you to show, you know what? Nothing, I won't be controlled by anything. And I'm going to prove that in Philippians chapter three, verse 19, we see that the wicked have their God as their belly. It says, whose God is their belly and their glory is in their shame. So fasting reveals the measure of food's mastery over of us or whether it's television or computers or social media or that ice mocha or whatever it might be. Do those things master us? Do we really have to have them? We're told in 1 John 5, 4 that this is the victory that overcomes the world. It's our faith. So man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that comes out of the mouth of God. And Satan, you know, he's such an incredible exegete of the Old Testament. He's smart. He knows how to trick us. He tricks Jesus with uh, the scriptures and out of context and not the true heart of God. And Jesus just snaps right back at him and says, Satan, you missed the point. The point of the passage is don't need bread, need God. That's what we're doing during fasting. We're showing I don't need bread, but I need God. And so I welcome you this week to a fast for more of God, for more of him, strength from him that comes from feasting upon Jesus and needing Jesus. A monk, a Benedict monk named Albert de Vogue wrote a book called To Love Fasting. And he writes this, Sexual fantasies seem to disappear, as do other irritating emotions. Furthermore, there is clarity on instrumental element to his fasting, as De Vogue describes it. He says, I think the cause of my joy is that a certain mastery of the primordial appetite eating permits a great mastery of all the other manifestations of the libido and aggressiveness It's as if the man who fasts were more himself in possession of his true identity and less dependent on exterior objects and the impulses they arouse in him. So whatever it is that's controlling you, whatever it is that's mastering you, fasting is a time to put those things in their place. The fourth thing I would give you today concerning fasting in the New Testament is that it's not merely an option for the Christian. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, we have these passages by Jesus where he says, when you pray, when you give, and then he says in verse 16, moreover, when you fast. Uh, The Bible doesn't say, hey, if you ever pray, and if you ever, you know, find it in the goodness of your heart to give, and if you ever just get that crazy unction and you want to fast, then here's how to do it. No, he says, when you pray, Christians, it's assumed that we pray. 
And Christians are generous in response to the generosity of God. We give. And we fast because we recognize we need to depend upon the Lord. And we do depend upon Him. When you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But to your Father who's in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And so Jesus just assumes that his disciples will be a part of this discipleship and obedience in fasting. He warns us against pursuing these duties for the praise of men. The fifth thing I give you is that fasting is not for Old Covenant, Old Testament, religious and ritualistic reasons. But it's for worship and intimacy with the Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ never made too much of fasting. It was a seldom thing that he spoke of. And when the Pharisees exaggerated, he kind of put them off on it here. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, you know, they say, How come, uh, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus says, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskin breaks, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And so he says, hey, you guys are being religious about your fasting, but you are not realizing who's standing in front of you today. I'm the one who's declaring the new covenant. And, and he just does this great uh, parable or an illustration there of, um, hey, I'm right here. So why would you be fasting while I'm right here with you? Let's rejoice right now. The day will come when they will fast. And they'll be fasting for the return of the uh, the bridegroom. And that's something that we do during this week. We want to fast in a heart that says, Lord, we're looking up for your return. We're expecting you to come back. And we say with our fasting, come back, groom, come back. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. So we're fasting with expectation that he will return. And that is a New Testament, new covenant type of fast. If you're tempted to go back to um, rituals and to just appear religious this week and to just get a check mark on your box and just get people, you know, ooh and ah, your spirituality and I'm fasting this week and you're getting all disheveled and your shirt's kind of untucked and, you know, you missed your buttons wrong and you got it a little longer on one side and, you know, you forgot to shave and brush your teeth and all that stuff and you're just, just trying to throw it out there at work to get reactions and all that. Like you're missing the point. There's your reward. Good on you. I hope it was worth it. Okay, Jesus says the New Testament fasting, one of the reasons we do it is because we, we're longing for Jesus to come back. And you can't put that, um, you know, you can't put this new longing over the old ways, okay, or else it will rip and tell, tear the garment. We've got to have a New Testament theology with our New Testament hope that we have in the reasons and the ways that we fast. The old, the old ways, right? The um, the, the, the part that doesn't match with New Testament would be that legalistic, ritualistic religite and Luke eighteen twelve that would just say, Hey, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I possess. You know, um, like the Lord's just not interested in that 
hoity-toity self-righteousness. Um, and Colossians two sixteen through 23 speaks to these things as well. Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, which are all shadows of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. And so uh, the old things, the old days, the old rituals, the old observances, uh, they were all pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of that. And so now that he has fulfilled that, it's okay to just be stoked about Jesus. And it's good to not be just religious in any observances. And of course, we would observe some things. We celebrate Passover here and things like that at our church. But we realize it's not, that's not the end in and of itself. It points to Jesus. And so, uh, the sixth thing I would give you today would be fasting and prayer as spiritual weaponry. This is probably one of the things that I am most, um, like sensing the Lord wants to do in our church and our community and our culture, uh, is giving us an understanding of this great sharp tool of a weapon that God has given us in fasting uh, again, fasting and prayer as spiritual weaponry. Uh, the theme for the men's muster this year is going to be on spiritual warfare in the man of God's life. And so uh, it's amazing how I've been studying for fasting and looking toward the muster and how those things, fasting and spiritual warfare, intertwine. And so Mark nine fourteen is a great passage on this. Uh, Andrew Murray called fasting the cure of unbelief. The cure of unbelief. And we'll see why that's important here in Mark 9. And so when he came to the disciples, this is right after the transfiguration, okay? And so Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and it's just so awesome. And Moses and Elijah appear next to him, and Peter and James and John. Peter's like, hey, let's build some tabernacles up here and just live up here. This is awesome. This is glorious, you know? And Jesus is like, we got to get back down. We got work to do. And there's an old saying that from the mountaintops always come the valleys, Okay. You ever go through a high time and season in your life, get ready because you're going to go into a difficult trial. And that's what happened with Jesus and the disciples. They come down the mountain. They see uh, a great, uh, came to the disciples. He sees a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running into him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? And then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes at his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out and they could not. He answered him and said, oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And you might underline in your notes there, uh, oh, faithless generation. Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he's thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help him. And Jesus said to him, and you'll underline this as well or make a note, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you come out of him and enter him no more. 
And then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly and came out of him. And he became as one dead so that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he come into the house, his disciple asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And so he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. And so it's interesting because you have the disciples they're, they've been sent out by the Lord, right? They've been called by Jesus. I mean, Jesus himself has called them and said, come follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. He gave them power over snakes and scorpions and to cast out demons. You know, they had the anointing of God upon their life and, uh, and yet they couldn't do it. Like what was up? Normally they were, you know, they were batting a hundred percent. Like they were, they're the best at this business, right? And for some reason they are in total gridlock against this demon-possessed kid, the demon that's within this child. And I was just reading, I'm going to use Spurgeon a bit this morning because he had a great sermon on this and I drew from it a lot, even this morning as I read it. And he just speaks about how so often we just get comfortable in just where we're at. I mean, how comfortable do you get being a disciple? And you're like, look, like I was mending my nets and Jesus said, come follow me. Like I was called by the lips of Jesus himself, you know, or I was you know, uh, getting my boat ready and Jesus came and called me and he, he called me. I've been walking with Jesus. I go camping with Jesus every day. Like, um, this is what we do. And I'm just kind of comfortable, comfortable doing it. And, uh, Spurgeon uses the example of, and I was telling Perry this last night, even in, in, it just happens in leadership sometimes how we get a good road going and then that road develops a rut. And someone once said a road leads to a rut and a rut leads to rot. And Spurgeon talks about back in the 1800s, the, you know, the, the road department of Nottingham or whatever, you know, they would fall these big logs and they would divert, you know, traffic off of those muddy roads and they'd have to go another way around the forest. That was the way that the roads were, you know, detoured back in the day. And he says, the Lord sometimes does that with us in all kinds of trials that we go through in life. To us, they just seem like such sucker punches to the face. How can I be going through this right now? And, uh, and the Lord's like, because you just were confident in your own strength. But interesting, now that you're going through a struggle, you're up an hour earlier in the day and you're praying, you're fasting, you're talking to your brothers and sisters and getting prayer from them. And now you're armed with the comfort through that trial. And now you're going after people that are going through it and you're telling them of my faithfulness. I did it in your life and I'm going to do it again in their life. And so we ought to be thankful that we come across these ones that the demon won't come out. <laughs> Because what does it make us do? It makes us go to the Lord in prayer and fasting for more faith, for more belief. It's the cure of unbelief, this uh, fasting. Um, and so Matthew tells us this in Matthew's version of it, seventeen nineteen. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. So that was the reason. These are the guys that walked, talked, knew Jesus more intimately than anybody else who's ever lived on the face of the earth. And they were walking in unbelief. What do you think about us? What about 2,000 years later? Do you think we've just got the corner market on uh, just always trusting in the Lord 24-7, never? Thank you. I think that was from, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what that reverb was there. Shake it out. Shake it off. Okay. Um, uh, you know, we, we obviously need more of the Lord. 
And so fasting is a cure for unbelief. You know, there's the, uh, one of the spiritual gifts mentioned in 1 Corinthians is the spiritual gift called the gift of faith. I heard it referred to once as a trust thrust. And I would tell you this, maybe you don't have that spiritual gift, the gift of faith, but one way to get a trust thrust is to go to the Lord in fasting and prayer. It's a cure for unbelief. So it was because of their unbelief. Jesus says, uh, it's there in Matthew 17, 20. uh, Surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Think about that promise right now. Jesus is essentially saying, trust me and I will do anything for you. Trust me, believe in me, and I will do anything for you, even move a mountain. This is a huge promise. However, this kind, this kind of demon, and what you're going up, and this roadblock right here, these trials in your life, think about it. What is the trial in your life? You're you're not seeing many demon-possessed kids that you can't cast the demon out of, but what is that thing in your life that you have been battling for decades and you've never had the victory. You've never been clean of it. You've never been free from it. You've never been able to shake it. And I think Jesus would say to you, it's because of your unbelief. And there's a cure for unbelief. This kind of struggle in your life, it's not the same as it is in this guy's life or in this girl's life. But this thing in your life, there's a level of unbelief in you. And this kind won't come out but by prayer and fasting. Isn't that crazy? Because it's in prayer and fasting that we come to the end of ourselves and we realize I don't need to medicate it or try to cover it up with this other stuff. I just need God. He is the answer. Spurgeon said, I've got it quoted for you to help you follow along with me. He says, because God gives the victory to faith and if we will not believe, neither shall we be established If we fall, as those disciples probably had fallen, into an unspiritual frame of mind and a low state of grace, our commission will not be worth much. Our former qualifications will be of little value. And all success we've had in earlier days will not take away the effect of present failures. He goes on to say, if we are to do the Lord's work and to do it successfully, we must have faith in him. We must look beyond ourselves. We must look beyond our commission. We must look beyond our personal qualifications. We must look beyond our former successes. We must look for a present anointing by the Holy Spirit. And by faith, we must hang upon the living God from day to day. How are we often like Uncle Rico on Napoleon Dynamite? You know, it's like, you know, just, oh, if I could just go back. Relive the glory days, you know, and it's like, I was something. I was really something back then. I do that, man. I come from, my history is like, I was a part of a big youth revival in 1997 that lasted for like almost 10 years. Like kids were getting saved and preaching it. And that fire has, is gone. Like that revival ended probably 10 years ago or more. And I can so often be like, ah, yeah, yeah, living in the glory days, you know? And it's like, what about today? What about today? What does the Lord want to do today? Today we need to press in for more power from our divine God. Andrew Murray wrote in With Christ in the School of Prayer. And why could we not believe? Our faith has cast out devils before this. 
Why have we now failed in believing? The master proceeds to tell them, ere they ask, this kind goeth out but by prayer, fasting and prayer. As faith is the simplest, so it is the highest exercise of spiritual life. Where our spirit yields itself in perfect receptivity to God's spirit and so is strengthened to his highest activity. This faith depends entirely upon the state of the spiritual life. Only when this is strong and in full health, when the spirit of God has full sway in our life, is there the power of faith to do its mighty deeds. Faith needs a life of prayer in which to grow and keep strong. Prayer needs fasting for its full and perfect development. So prayer and fasting brings victories that otherwise wouldn't be brought. It unlocks a door that otherwise wouldn't be unlocked. When you contact a demon like this one, you can't just stop and fast at the moment right then and there. We have to live a life of fasting and prayer. H.A. Ironside said, no one can have power over unclean spirits unless he is in intimate touch with God. Uh, studying this last week, week, I was reminded, I'd completely forgotten of this story until this week, about a Johann Christoph Blumhart. What a name, huh? Alive uh, in around 1880 was when he passed away, but in the 1840s, 1842 through 44, he went through a two-year battle against demons that had possessed a, a young lady in his community. And you guys, I don't have time to tell you all. I have a whole lot here. Second service will probably get more of the story. Um, I went ahead and bought the book last week to read it. And when I started reading it, I had to stop reading it at night because I started getting scared. <laughs> and and I, so I picked it back up during the day while I was surrounded with people this week. And the crazy thing is, is that he said, you know, when when me and you know, there were tons of people involved in this exorcism and stuff, and it was a two-year process, there were two guys of just great integrity that were just by his side the whole time and just depth of spirituality and love in Jesus. And, and they just made a covenant with each other that they wouldn't get all hyped up and all like immature about it, you know? And I was like, oh, me and my buddies would be like, oh, it was crazy. And it was like, Wah! and we were like, I know, right? You know? And they just, they were like the whole time, like they were just stone cold Steve Austin with this thing. It's just incredible. And, and just the whole thing, they just were like, we don't want it to be a big media thing. We don't want it just spreading around that this is happening. We don't, we want less people around. And I mean, we are talking like ghost stories and horror stuff that went on. That was just the whole community was witnessing this going on. And when you study what goes on in other world, other countries, right? This is exactly what people see all the time. But, uh, so essentially what happened was, um, and it's in with Christ in the school of prayer with Andrew Murray, that Murray refers to this guy. At first I was like, I don't know. I want to, I don't know if I trust where this guy's at. It seems a little like, whoa, you know? Um, but I was like, I trust Murray. And so if Murray, and so it just, the more I read of this Bloomheart, the more I see just what an incredible man of faith and integrity. And it was for two years that he would love on this gal and serve her and move her from house to house and try to just protect her and, and it wasn't telling, I'm just going to read from Andrew Murray. It's a shorter version of this. He says, at the time when Bloomheart was passing through his terrible conflict with the evil spirits and those who were possessed and seeking to cast them out by prayer, he often wondered what it was that hindered the answer. You know, why was it taking two years to cast these out? 
One day, a friend to whom he'd spoken of his trouble directed his attention to our Lord's word about fasting. Bloomhart resolved to give himself to fasting, sometimes for more than 30 hours. From reflection and experience, he gained the conviction that it is of more importance than is generally thought. He says, quote, Inasmuch as the fasting is before God, a practical proof that the thing we ask is to us a matter of true and pressing interest, and inasmuch as in a high degree it strengthens the intensity and power of the prayer and becomes the unceasing practical expression of a prayer without words, I would believe that it would not be without efficacy, especially as the master's words had reference to a case like the present. I tried it without telling anyone. So uh, someone told him, have you thought about fasting like Jesus? Can you imagine like for two years, you're trying to cast a demon out and you get to, you don't get to this passage where Jesus talks about prayer and fasting. It was another guy that said, you ought to try praying and fasting. So he says, I tried it without telling anyone. And in truth, the later conflict was extraordinarily lightened by it. I could speak with much greater restfulness and decision. I did not require to be so long present with the sick one. And I felt that I could influence without being present. And what ended up happening is that as he fasted and prayed, uh, the demons came out of her. There were something like a thousand demons that came out of her. And the final demon cried out, Christ is victor as he came out. Uh, and so it, that became the motto of Bloomhart's ministry later on in life is Jesus is victor. Jesus wins. And that is something that we see during times of prayer and fasting. There is so much, I've been stirred since our seven sons of Sceva study in the book of Acts, you guys, and, and seeing what happens there, that, that there is so much spiritual darkness going on around us. And we don't need to be like, Man, I read that Frank Peretti novel the other day, and now I'm like afraid there's like a demon behind every garbage can and behind every, ah, you know, but we got to realize like, hey, like there's attack going on. If there's a real spiritual world, God's given us weapons uh, that's within our warfare and it's not carnal stuff. Let's get to prayer. Let's get to fasting. Let's, let's trust the Lord to bring the victory in this stuff that's going on because our battle isn't against flesh and blood. And it's through fasting that we realize those things. Uh, Spurgeon said it. It is long since we had a temptation. Uh, it is long since we had a temptation to certain forms of sin. We sent them adrift in the name of the Lord. But there are certain others of this diabolians, uh, of these diabolians that hide away in dens and caves and corners, and we cannot rout them out. Why could we not cast them out? He says, "I put it to you, but let each one's own conscience get along with Christ." And asked him. Why am I baffled and defeated? Why can I not cast this evil out? And so, again, what is that thing that just won't leave? You're not seeing the victory. And Spurgeon's advice is good. Get alone with Christ this week and ask him, why can't I cast this out? And I would specifically ask, where is this level of unbelief coming from? Where is this unbelief coming from? And as you go to fast this week and... It may look different for everybody. I, and I beat it to just beat the dead horse last week that it may not be entire food all week long. It may be one meal a day that you fast from to see the victory in this area. It might be two meals a day and you come after our evening session, you go home and you eat something light before you go to bed. You know, pray about what that looks like for you. There's no strict rules on this, but I would say, let's seek after the Lord for the victory. Let's seek after the Lord for the cure of unbelief. 
And Spurgeon says, man, I could die rather than that soul should die. I could wish myself a curse rather than that soul were a curse. I put myself to the dust before God, even in the dust of self-abasement on account of that soul that I may win it to Christ. Then that sort of devil will have to go out, starving him out by starving yourself and making your own spirit wretched and miserable for the poor sinner's sake. You will make that devil find the person untenable any longer as a lodging place. And so he talks about fasting so that the people around us would be saved. I'm going to fast. I'm going to... I'm going to die to self so that person doesn't die in eternity. Very quickly, we're going to go through the final little points here. Um, uh, fasting in the New Testament. In Matthew 15, 32, we see the, the people who would follow and listen to Jesus. They went without food to remain longer under Jesus's teaching. And so sometimes just be, being a Christian, like being around, just being around the stuff that's going on in the church, sometimes... You're just serving and you're just in the Bible studies and you're at the stuff that the church is doing. And man, you know what? I didn't even get lunch today because I was just in Jesus's teaching and involved in what's going on in, in the, in the body of Christ. Uh, sometimes it's men, you know what? I've been fasting and not eating of the social media as much because I've been spending more time at home group and at youth group and in the, you know, the different fellowship groups and serving people and serving down at the church. You know, I just don't have time for a lot of that other stuff anymore. And I don't even realize it so much so that Jesus had to say, Hey, go get these guys some food because they've been hanging out with me so long. They haven't been eating anything. The eighth thing is after an encounter with Jesus, people fast after they've been saved. There's conviction of sins and kicking against Jesus. We see that in Acts nine, nine, that after Saul of Tarsus got saved, and converted from being a persecutor of Christians to being a Christian himself, he just couldn't eat for three days. He was just struck with the gravity of his sin and that he had been, you know, he thought he was offering God a service by killing Christians and throwing him in prison. And when he saw Jesus and Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Then he said, man, I just can't eat. And for three days he didn't eat or drink. Uh, because he, the gravity of the situation, and sometimes for people to get saved from their sin, it's like, man, how can I even eat? I'm just so thankful that he has saved me, okay? Uh, we did note that in the Old Testament, the only mandated fast is on the Day of Atonement in a time of just solemn awareness of the atoning blood of the Lamb that washes away our sin. The ninth thing, we see it in Acts 13 too. Fasting is ministering to the Lord, and it's in those times of ministering to the Lord that you receive calling and direction for world missions. So in Acts 13, 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So um, someone once said, Every country in the world today has a Christian presence in it because of this prayer and fasting meeting. Because of what was happening there in Antioch, they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. The Lord sent out missionaries that would end up coming all the way to good old Oregon. So we're thankful for times like this where people were ministering to the Lord and received their commission to be sent out. The 10th thing, uh, the early church would fast and pray before appointing church leaders in Acts fourteen twenty three. So when they'd appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so even this week, we have three elders that were just taking the final five days of, you know, they've been about 18 months in just being candidates and spending time close to the team. And 
Um, our plan is in a, in a couple Sundays to lay hands on them unless the Lord leads in a different direction as we fast and pray over them over this week. Uh, the 11th thing we see for ceremonial public worship, it's a tiny little verse. I don't even have it for you today. Acts 27, 9, uh, on a ship, Paul just said it, there was a fe- there was a time that the um, they would fast and worship, and so they fasted and worshiped, and you see that in Acts 27. Uh, 12 out of 13. The 12th thing, uh, giving up good gifts from the Lord for fasting and prayer and seeking the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 7, 5, it says, towards husbands and wives, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. So there shouldn't be these times of abstinence within the marriage bed unless it's agreed upon by each other and the purpose is for fasting and for prayer. And then there's got to be that set time where you come together again. Why? So that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So just as intimately as you would long for your spouse, you're to long for the Lord and then come back together uh, so that Satan doesn't tempt you. And the final thing here, in relationship to ministry, fasting sometimes is a result of suffering for the sake of the gospel. Second Corinthians 6, 4, but in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers to God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs and distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors. It's verse 10 where it says, in sleeplessness and in fastings. As ministers to the Lord, there's times where you just commend yourself to the Lord in fasting. In 2 Corinthians 11, 27, we see that Paul was suffering for Christ in one way that he would suffer was in fastings often. So why don't we go ahead and set our things aside and we'll have the worship team come back up. Once you set your things aside, you can stand and we'll close in a song just responding to the word today. So that might have been a lot for you. <laughs> like, what have I done coming to this church? I ask myself that all the time, actually. Join the club. You'll fit right in. Man, I would just encourage you today, two weeks of just going through the whole Bible and looking at not all of the moments of fasting, but many of the, the things of fasting and seeing, drawing out principles of fasting. And there's so much hope that the Lord moves in those times. And, you know, just from one man to other men, from one hungry, hungry human to many other hungry, hungry humans, I get it. Um, I, I love food so much. And you know what? I wouldn't be calling the church to this if I didn't see the Bible call us to it. And if I hadn't experienced God's faithfulness in these times and seen it in individuals, in their homes, in their marriage, in their health and healings and deliverance and all sorts of things. And then as a church and his provision for our church, his protection for our church, his uh, just directing us and his faithfulness. And, and so I just would say, I remember my pastor, the first fast that he called us to in, gosh, it was 2009. 
uh, he just said, man, there's something wrong. If your pastor calls the church to prayer and fasting and lays out all the scriptures and all the church history and all the reasons and all the experiences and you leave that building just like, not going to do it. Like, I'm just concerned for you if that's where you're at. There's something wrong. And maybe just this afternoon you would get together with the Lord and say, what's up? Okay. It may look different for you. There's a lot of freedom in it. You don't have to do a total no food, no water, six, you know, even take it an extra week longer than everybody else. We're not calling anybody to that. We're just saying, seek the Lord and come be a part of what God is doing here as we cry out to him. And so with this final song, maybe just let's lay all of our struggles with this before him, all of our fears before him, everything that just, maybe we just feel our flesh rising up against it. Maybe even there's spiritual warfare going on. There's such a darkness around your life that just you need to ask the Lord to just push back the enemy so that you can get to a place where you can seek him. And let's just kind of take this week to consecrate, take this last song to consecrate our hearts to hear the call of the Lord and to be a part of this week of fasting and prayer in whatever capacity the Lord would lead us in.